3: This episode of Ramble Meets is sponsored by Bet Three Six Five.
4: Michael Cox, football journalist and author.
3: Michael, um, your website Zonal Marking was set up in January 2010. Is that right? That is correct. Um, to provide tactical analysis of football matches. What is it that inspired you to 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 make that step into into putting some of your ideas out there for public consumption?
4: Well, my issue was always that I didn't think newspapers covered football matches in a very good way. Right. I think uh, newspapers do a lot of good football coverage. Interviews are good. They get stories. There's often good features. But in the modern age, there's no need for traditional match reports. I mean, I haven't gone out of my way to read a match report in years Mm. because I've always seen the games as catch up. It's clips on Twitter, whatever. You don't need to read what has happened. I think you need to read why it happened. And... uh, I followed two sports when I was growing up, football and cricket, and they were completely different in terms of analysis. Cricket, there was always statistical analysis, there was always good tactical stuff, there was always good visualisations. And it taught me stuff about cricket that I didn't know. And uh, I thought that was always lacking in football.
3: Is it, have you always found that, I mean, I don't expect you to be too self-aggrandizing this early on, but is it something that you thought straight away... I can see what's happening here. I can understand the tactics. I can understand the shape. I can see what the manager and the players are trying to do. Or were you, at the very start, bluffing it for for for, for a while?
4: I mean, I don't think any of it's complex. I don't think you need to have a particular mind for it. Right. You know, I, I sat with games with a kind of chalkboard and moved the magnets around and found patterns and wrote down everything that happened. Yeah. And then you gradually see patterns that, you know, you end up analysing the game rather than just the incidents. You know, just the goals which can be kind of one-off things rather than something that it was, uh, you know, is related to the overall game plan.
3: And what but what inspired you to, first of all, get out there and say, I'm going to set up a website I'm actually going to do this for people to see? Do you, you think I'm good at this? I think it can be of real benefit to, to football fans.
4: Yeah, I wanted to get into football journalism and uh, it seemed the obvious way to do it, to put your stuff out there rather than be kind of, you know, doing work experience everywhere, which I did. But, yeah. you know, it's it's a long route to to get into where you're actually doing features and stuff. It was like, yeah, this is a, a kind of interpretation of football writing that isn't out there really. So just put it out there and see if it gets traction.
3: What is it that made you fall in love with football in the first place? Uh,
4: just playing it at school. Yeah. Like no one in my family's interested in football yeah. at all. So yeah, it was just like you play it in the playground and, and then you end up following it at higher levels. But, mm. uh, yeah, it was, I kind of had quite a almost a removed approach in football because I wasn't, you know, I wasn't from a football family or anything and grew up in like Surrey, South London. So it wasn't a big football area really. Mm. So it was always kind of a viewing it as a slight outsider, if that makes
3: yeah. sense. Yes. So you felt like you were outside looking in and you found it interesting as an outsider.
4: Yeah, yeah, exactly.
3: Yeah. Um, were you surprised with the reception you got from your original? Blog. can I call it a blog now is that old fashioned
4: well probably? no one called yeah, people who don't really do blogs no nah, website it's it's uh, yeah.
3: it. Were, you, were you surprised with the with the positive reaction you received from it
4: yeah a little bit I was I was very lucky so I started doing that in, in 2010 and I don't know if you remember but the, the World Cup coverage the television coverage in 2010 was as bad as it's ever been right so that, that like, was the Nadir the was it yeah Okay. And, and and that got a lot of traction it was also the first time where it's probably the first uh, tournament where people were using Twitter for example yeah and I think people were seeing a very obvious contrast between, you know, the coverage they were getting on television and then you could follow these kind of weird, wonderful journalists from around the world who would give you insights. And there was suddenly a big... I think a lot of people in television and radio maybe realised, actually, we have to up our game here. And over the next couple of years, you saw the level of punditry rides with, for example, the introduction of Gary Neville, which I yeah. think was a big a big moment in terms of improving the analysis on on television.
3: And... It's it's kind of interesting because l- looking back at some of that, that those early entries and and articles that you wrote, it was the start of the t- of the time I feel like I don't think I've got my dates wrong here, where people's it, the, the general consensus was that people's attention spans were getting shorter and short form thing was the way to go, and people just wanted to watch <clears throat> excuse me minute long videos and. We used to, I used to go to meetings with, with commercial people. They'd go, we want, we want snackable fun. We don't want anything too long. What, your podcast was an hour long? That's, that's a disgrace. But a lot of your articles are quite long form, quite in-depth. So th- there must have been a little bit of surprise that it was being consumed in such numbers. Or did you just not have anything to base it on? So you just like, I don't want to backfill the narrative. It just
4: was what it was. I don't know. Really, I'm not even sure I thought about that. But the the attention span thing is interesting because I remember that. Yeah, I remember hmm. like you know when I was first getting into it and everyone was saying that. And now obviously it's a different world, but like people are watching Game of Thrones for 10 hours. straight. Yeah, I know. It's yeah, like yeah. It's, it's well, Netflix seems to have changed the game a bit on that because people will binge watch stuff, will not they? Yeah. So I, I'm, I'm not sure that that kind of bite sized thing turned out to be true. Um, but yeah, it, it, it was long and it was in depth, but it was, yeah, that's, that's how I thought stuff needed to be consumed. And if you're talking about tactics, I'm not sure it works in a, a paragraph.
3: No, well, I guess it would, it might even be impossible. Um, and, and, so we talked about how, how about how you, you you got into it, and you said to me before we came on today that you've really enjoyed this season in terms of the football that's been played. Yeah. How different now is football in 2019 to when it was when you first started treating it as a as a job? Yeah,
4: really different. I mean, the speed of change in football is absolutely incredible, and is
3: it getting faster, like the expansion of the universe?
4: Yeah, I, I think that is true. Um, I mean, the thing that has changed the game in the last few years is is the rise of pressing and. There's so many different things that are going on that I don't think people talk about in terms of what players are doing without the ball. The the sophistication with how teams form kind of pressing traps and try to get the ball back, and it's not just about man marking players; it's about pressuring players from different angles. It's it's really quite a different world, I think, from even from 2010 when I first started doing it, when you know the side that won European Cup was Mourinho's Inter, who yeah. would just sit deep you don't really get big teams playing like that anymore. It's it's really changed an incredible amount.
3: And and do you think it, it runs to the idea that even the really talented footballer coming through now <clears throat> wouldn't be able to become a top-level professional if they didn't have the athletic capacity that was needed for the demands of the modern game?
4: I think that's true, but I think also in terms of you need to be tactically intelligent and you need to work as a team. You need to be doing things that uh, you won't get praise for from supporters in the because they don't necessarily know what the game plan is mm. and sometimes you see managers going crazy at players and you almost can't work out why because they seem to be doing all right yeah but it's they're not doing quite simple obvious things that they've been told beforehand that aren't obvious to us so that's one of the challenges is at the end of the day you don't know what the manager said you can't completely analyze every individual player without knowing what their instructions are
3: yeah and I suppose in, in, the vast majority of people will never know. They'll go home after the game or after they've watched it on the TV and after a while they may may not think of that game again so they'll never know what the team was trying to do. <clears throat> Excuse me. And so that connect between what you're interpreting the manager's asking them to do and, and and the fan is kind of the, the 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 area in which you sit, right?
4: Yeah, and it's you know it's interesting sometimes you'll see an incident in a game where for example someone plays a pass in behind and he gestures at a player who wasn't making a run. Mm. And that player's like forty yards behind the player. And you think, well, how can he have made that run? Yeah. But maybe they'd worked on the day before on that specific move and yeah. he wasn't in that position. Yeah. So sometimes you don't know who's got that wrong.
3: And, and and I remember when I was a kid, I used to be quite into basketball around when the Chicago Bulls were brilliant in the early nineties, okay, yeah. right? And um I went we went on holiday to um to to the US with a family. And um and I remember watching, just catching some news, sports news kind of segment on the TV because they were way ahead of us with that kind of stuff. And there was a there was a thing. I think it might have even been a Chicago Bulls player. I forget which I forget which one. Who just he was supposed he passed the ball, but he just passed it straight off the court. Okay. And, yeah. and it became quite a um, interesting sort of discussion point. And then he was interviewed, and they said, "Why did you do that?" And he said, "Well, the guy should have been there." Yeah. And that, and that that's that's kind of what you're talking about, right? That's the tactical side of the game that you're that you're talking about.
4: Yeah, for sure, and it's yeah. I mean, teams work so much on passing patterns, on pressing patterns, and it is quite sophisticated. And you do see sometimes, and for, for example, English football isn't at the top in terms of tactical sophistication. So when you had the lad um, Oliver Burke, who went to uh, was it
3: Leipzig? Yeah, he went overseas for sure, Ka- a Scottish couple of years guy, yeah. ago. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
4: and uh, his manager when he got there said his understanding of pressing, we're having to start him from zero. Right, and I thought, and it was a, a real...
3: damning indictment of his previous manager.
4: Well, exactly, <laughs> but it's it's quite interesting that you wouldn't usually hear that phrase about a professional football starting from zero. No. That he was having to learn new, completely new concepts,
3: and so uh, not just the athletic abilities needed now, but then the intelligence as well. Does do players need to be more intelligent than they probably were twenty years ago?
4: I think so, and I think we're at an interesting point where teams are increasingly using data to measure performance as you know as i'm sure everyone's read about and i think there's a debate now how much are you giving that data to the player and in what form because hmm. some players understand data they like data they like visualizations and some it, it just it just doesn't work for them and i think that's you know it's one of the many things of uh, of managing a professional side is you've got to treat players in different ways hmm. uh, according to their you know their demands
3: and and there will be certain players that aren't compatible with certain managers for that reason, right? So I don't know if this is true, but I've heard that um, part of the reason that Aaron Ramsey's moving on from Arsenal to go to the Juventus is because Emery's not convinced that he can interpret the role that Emery wants him to interpret. And that could be that he can't process the information. Right? I'm not saying it is, but it could be that, right?
4: Yeah, for sure. There's there's certain managers who, you know, don't want players to express themselves. They want them to kind of carry out tasks and uh, yeah, I'm not sure whether that is the case with Ramsey, but you see it with uh, with lots of managers and lots of players. Who the player is clearly very good, but are not doing the the things the manager wants.
3: I spoke to Jonathan Wilson as well for for this series, and um, I think we discussed either on on the episode itself or, or off air that um, if you are, if you accept that different, and this is something Jonathan said, I think it's in one of his books. If you accept that players adopt certain positions. At that very basic level, you adopt the idea that tactics are important and need to be important, but you have received a decent amount of backlash over the years. It's fair to say from people in football who have who have seen your coverage of football as being overly cerebral. is that fair
4: yeah absolutely and but I think the mistake that's often made is i'm not I'm not saying that this is football i'm not saying football is just tactics and strategy, but so much of football coverage focuses upon desire upon physical ability. On team spirit, mm. on motivation, on that kind of thing, that is. I've just tried to play a balancing role. Actually, the tactics are important. This is what the managers are paid to do. They scout opponents for hours and hours and hours, and then go onto the training pitch and formulate specific plans to take advantage of weaknesses. Mm. And that wasn't really being spoken about. It probably is now. I, I think. I think there is yeah. a good level of tactical analysis out there. So I wouldn't. I wouldn't start writing about tactics in the same way today because I, I think it's. It's almost covered
3: it kind of it, was, it kind of developed a a us versus them type thing wasn't it like you're either yeah. a proper football guy or you were... And it's and it's basically bound. I don't propose to get into this in any depth, really. But it's it's bound up in this kind of anti intellectual attitude towards football. Yeah. Uh, I think it was Simon Cooper who said that for foot, for English football to succeed, they need to embrace the middle class because all they do is, <laughs> t- is take their players from working class backgrounds, and that's seen as as football's environment. Um, and and there's definitely an anti intellectual strain to the game, isn't there? Which I, I admit, with with people like Guardiola and and, and other other managers coming in, it's, it's probably changing. But that, do you think that's still prevalent in the game?
4: Yeah, I think so. And, and yeah, there was a bit of a backlash. I remember... Uh, Owen Coyle. The big big Coily. Owen Coyle was a big one. So I, yeah, there was a point where Owen Coyle was was basically being touted for the Arsenal job, right? which I found very odd because um, Bolton scored a couple of really good team goals that season. Right, and Pete, <laughs> that, was, that, was, that, was, that was what it took, was pretty it? Pretty much. And yeah. And I did an article that was... And you know, looking back, this was not sophisticated stats at all, but it was the first time really that stats were publicly available. And I looked at the stats and they had one of the lowest possession shares one of the lowest pass completion rates the things that they did very well were aerial duels mm. tackles blocks mm. so this wasn't a manager that was suited to arsenal so i did an article about that and then someone i think for 442 magazine put the stats to coil and he was very unhappy yeah. about this characterization
3: i mean i've got the quote if you want it
4: yeah go on. um that mark davis goal against blackpool
3: was an unbelievable believable footballing goal. I don't know if Zonal or whatever saw that. We get our pro zone stuff every week and I can assure you we pass the ball a lot more. Zonal, whoever, good luck to him. Your facts and stats will tell you anything you want but nothing can beat the naked eye in football. Well, the thing I like
4: that is it's got zonal, whatever, and zonal, whoever. <laughs> know, yeah. but the is, if the first word is zonal, <laughs> <Yeah>. like <laughs> yeah. you don't really get it. <laughs> no. There's only one zonal phrase in football, isn't there? I know. But the thing is, I wasn't even saying he was a bad man. Like he was doing a good job at that point with with Bolton. But I thought that was an example of how. You see the two goals on match of the day, and they look like a great footballing team, mm. but actually the stats in you know I wasn't watching every Bolton game mm. at that point, very few people are with the exception of Bolton fans. But if you look at the stats, you compare it to other teams in the league, and they were far more like kind of pulis' Stoke than they were an arsenal
3: and, and it's not as though you're even saying you've not come from a position where you're saying, I won't call at Bolton. He's doing it all wrong. It's not how you do it. You do it like this and he should listen to me. You're not, you're not even saying that you're just giving people information if they want to consume it. And if they don't, they don't have to, that's fine. Yeah. It comes across like he's a little bit insecure about it. Maybe he's protesting a bit too much there.
4: A little bit. Yeah. And, and you're right on that. It wasn't even a criticism of, of his style of management. I mean, Pulis at the same time was playing an even more raw form of football that was being very successful but you wouldn't have had him touted as Arsenal manager it just wouldn't have made sense no
3: alright listen let's take a little break and uh, after that we'll talk a bit about your books plural <laughs> including the new one that's coming out and, uh, and, and, and so don't go anywhere
1: life is full of what ifs some awesome like what if AI could fold your laundry And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.
0: When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring.
3: Welcome back to this episode of Ramble Meets with Mr. Michael Cox. Um, Michael, you you in 2017 you turned your um, I mean you've been writing articles for the Guardian for some time, of course, and for ESPN. You turned your uh, your 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 writing skill, shall we say, into your first book, The Mixer, which is about the history of Premier League football. That's that right? Yeah. Um, what what inspired you to to want to do that, and um, how did you find the process?
4: I just always wanted to do books. Really, I think that was you know as you said earlier, it's. It's kind of long form writing that I do. I think it's much more suited to to books than it is to newspaper articles, which often have to be a little bit, uh, well, they have to be snappy. Sometimes they have to be yeah. addressing the story. Mm. Um, and yeah, I think it was, uh, no one had really written about the development of the Premier League in a, in a footballing sense. There have been lots of books about the business side of it, which is interesting, but it's not. It's not what I'm interested in football. Yeah. I'm not interested in, in finance and that kind of thing. I'm right. interested in what happens on the pitch. Yeah. So, yeah, it was addressing, a, you know, something people haven't covered. And what is the story?
3: Of, I mean, people will go out and pick up the book, I'm sure, but what is the story of, of the Premier League uh, in, in in a few short sentences?
4: It's basically been about the internationalisation of the league. I mean, the first ever Premier League match day in, in August 1992, there was 11 foreign players in the entire league. That's incredible, isn't it? 1992. And then in Boxing Day in 1999... Chelsea fielded 11 foreign players in the same team. And it only took seven years for that to happen. It's seven crazy. years. Yeah. Um, and people of our generation kind of take that for granted. It's just something that's happened and I think it's it has fundamentally changed the way the Premier League has played. But that is an incredible development in such a, a short period of time. And then we subso- uh, subsequently saw the internationalisation of managers, which happened a little bit later, and even now on in foreign owners. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's the, by far the most international domestic league of any sport in the world and and that is partly why it's become so popular and that manifests itself in seeing an incredible range of styles amongst the top teams in the Premier League because you've got managers from six, seven different countries Mm. who kind of all bring something different to the party.
3: So it's basically what you're talking about then is the internationalisation of the game but via an explosion of fresh, completely new ideas and ways of looking at the game.
4: Yeah, and the evolutions have almost always come from a foreign manager or foreign player coming in and, and doing something completely differently. So Wenger the obvious example mm. with Arsenal in the 90s. But then there was a massive shift, I think, when Mourinho and Benitez arrived in 2004, as both as European winners, and the game became so much more tactical and so much more defensive and so much more strategic. And I think there was another big shift in 2016 with Guardiola coming, with Klopp coming... Uh, Top's first full season mm. with Conte coming, you saw again a completely different approach to the structure of teams. And there's been very few, I'd say, probably only two or three, genuine British revolutionaries in the Premier League years. Who would they, who would they be? Uh, I think one is Ferguson in terms of the sense that he was always in in Britain, but he incorporated foreign ideas at an earlier stage because there was a point where in the old format of the European Cup, he was the only one, United were the only team in the European Cup, basically. Mm. And he was learning lessons from Barcelona, from Milan. I think another was Rio Ferdinand, who people underestimate in terms of, people used to speak about him, how they spoke about John Stones a couple of years ago. Like, this is a guy who is not a natural defender. He's a ball player. He's he's bringing the ball out from defence. People weren't really accustomed to that. And the other one, uh, who people might kind of laugh at, but uh, Brendan Rodgers at Swansea, played a completely different brand of football from anyone else in the Premier League. They came up from the championship and they were recording the highest possession share in the league, which was a remarkable commitment to possession football at a time where that was the dominant way to play with with Barcelona, with, with Spain. But apart from that, it's generally been, you know, a manager arrives from abroad, introduces a new idea. Three or four years later, people have caught up and that manager kind of starts to decline it's Mm. been a very it's almost like an arms race it's been fascinating
3: why do you think people would laugh when you mention Brendan Rodgers because he's a bit of a, a kind of risible person or
4: well because I think he's seen as almost a bit of a I don't know almost a bit of a joke figure and people think that Liverpool failing to win the league in 2014 was a massive failure on his behalf and maybe he did make some errors but they started as fifth favourites to win the title mm. so to even come in with a, with a chance of doing that and then when you look at what he achieved uh, with Swansea taking them up with such a commitment to that style of football and what he did at Celtic which you know is not the most competitive league but basically won everything he could possibly win mm. I think he's an excellent manager I think Leicester have done very well to get him and the other two you mentioned, Rio Ferdinand, obviously
3: is a player, so that's a little bit different. Is it, is it possible for a player to really affect the game in such a, such a way? I mean, it, I mean, because we're talking about ideas here, and Rio Ferdinand executes all these ideas, obviously, on the pitch via a manager. So, he, are you simply saying that it was it became possible for an English centre back to be a ball playing centre back?
4: Yeah, to a certain extent. But I think people, when people talk about football tactics, they think it's only about management, it's only about coaching, the players can equally be revolutionary. The, the the key figure in the development of the Premier League, in my opinion, is Eric Cantona, because he came to England and he played a kind of number 10 role at a time when teams weren't really playing with that, that kind of player. And you saw in the, the next couple of years, everyone tried to get their equivalent. You saw Arsenal get Burkamp, you saw Chelsea get Zola, you know, even players like King Cladsey and juninho mm. And a lot of the time managers were literally saying, yeah, we need a kind of Cantona figure. And so he was the guy who kind of kick-started the Premier League's tactical and technical development really and uh, you know you saw that later with someone like Thierry Henry I think completely changed the way people talk about centre forwards it was interesting when I was researching Henry and I went back to you know there was a debate between him and Van Nistelrooy and a lot of established pundits are saying Henry's great but he's not really a forward Mm. Van Nistelrooy is a proper striker but now there aren't too many strikers like Van Nistelrooy who just score goals you expect players to be like Henry to drift wide to come short to assist players so, you know, Omri is another example of a player who I think really changed perceptions of, of his position.
3: And what's, what's the legacy that Alex Ferguson leaves tactically? Uh, we know him as a winner and we know him as a guy who takes, as you mentioned, takes ideas from, from other European clubs and, and his, his great ability was one to be able to adapt, right, and reinvent yeah. teams. W- w- what's his legacy, now, other than just being a serial winner that everyone finds synonymous with trophies?
4: Well, I think it's a really good question because he was much more advanced tactically than I think people... Recognise right
3: because um, and- sorry I had a conversation with I think um, Andy Brasser who said or one of the one of the guys we work with said you know this Real Madrid team who's just won three European Cups or whatever in four years or whatever it is they haven't changed the game in any way no. so can they be seen as a great team yeah and I wonder I don't think it will be immediately apparent to everyone listening and possibly even to myself that w- what's changed when Ferguson finished, what, what, what his legacy, what he leaves behind.
4: Well, the thing is, he was there for so long that I think he changed things within his career. So the Cantona thing, as I just mentioned, was that was a different way of playing in English football. But
3: that, but he describes that as quite an opportunistic move to get a player who was available and he felt like he needed some star quality. It wasn't yeah. a tactical thing, I don't think, where he said, we need a number 10 and he's the best one, so we're going to go and get him. Is that fair?
4: Oh, it is fair. I mean, they were in the market for kind of uh, David Hurst. Yeah, and... that's right. Yeah, Alan so... Shearer as well. Shearer, yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, it was it was a slightly coincidental thing, um, and I think I think football has changed. I think at that point it was the players who were interpreting roles, you know, as I say with Cantona. But later on, there's a he makes a very obvious decision that we're going to go from four four two to playing with only one up front. Mm. So they brought in Veron and Van Nistelrooy in the same summer, um, and basically decided the formation first, and then went to get the players. Right. Right. And then later on, and and that didn't initially work particularly well. I mean, they didn't win the league that season, but there was subsequently a big shift towards playing one up front in the Premier League. And then later when he gets gets in Carlos Quieros, um, who was always committed to playing almost without a fixed striker. And you saw that in their run to the European Cup in 2008, and they got to the final the next year, where you don't know who the forward's going to be. Sometimes it's Rooney, sometimes it's Tevez. Do you think Ferguson sought out
3: Quiros and thought this is a guy whose ideas I like and I'd quite like to play in this style and he's going to be able to help me implement it.
4: He's incredibly complimentary about him, about Kieros. He says he's a football genius. He took all the training ground sessions and was formulating the team. Ferguson was picking the team and doing the motivation and still obviously playing a huge role. But in terms of, you know, if you'd come into that club without knowing who they are, you'd think... Kieros was the manager and you see that at other clubs you saw it with Blackburn in the 1990s Dale Galicia wasn't doing any coaching it was all Ray Harford mm. so a lot of the time these these clubs are more characterised by the assistants than they are mm. by the manager of course the manager is choosing to bring in the assistants but I think Ferguson recognised that Kieros was you know a very very good tactical manager but someone who if he didn't get to the top as a manager in his own right is because he didn't have that relationship with players so Ferguson was doing mm. that role and Kieros was was the tactical guy? It's quite
3: interesting that that a man so successful would know and have the humility to be able to to, to implement that kind of strategy because he went through quite a lot of different assistant managers, famously. Yeah. Yet he knows what he's good at and what he's not good at, and that's probably the key to why he was so successful. Because in his book, in his first book, the one that is actually good, um, <laughs> which which goes up to and ends in 1999, it's not really very tactically in depth and that might be a conscious decision but he does talk a lot about things like we knew we could exploit that area of their team and we knew that um, Ryan Giggs was in brilliant form this week and or this month and so we did and, but beyond that he, he doesn't really strike me as someone who's a hugely deep thinker about tactic same with Brian Clough really as well
4: yeah I mean not in that Ferguson book but what I didn't realise until I researched the, the first book was um, for I think three or four years in the 90s he brought out like a diary of a season and it's right. not like it's not narrative it's not an autobiography it's literally just this is what I did this day this is what I did the next right. day and it's really in depth you know it, and it's a time where you know we don't know so much about foreign sides and he's up against like Fenerbahce and he flies over to Turkey and was like called Jojo Kocha he's incredible we're gonna have to get someone to mark him right and so there's you see a lot more of the in-depth the tactical thinking that maybe doesn't make it to a kind of broader you know, a book that's aimed at a broader market who don't care about that kind of thing. Yeah. But his his fascination with the way Milan play, the way Barcelona play, and Ajax as the other side that he's, he's learning off is, is quite interesting. It's like he's speaking about a different world because English football had been so behind the times. It had literally mm. been banned from European competition for sure. And the
3: transmitting of ideas was a lot more difficult then as well.
4: Exactly. And so he's the guy who's ahead of the game because he's directly learning off these sides you know, United are going over to Barcelona and getting spanked 4-0. And he's like, okay, well, we've got to change. We've got to keep the ball. There's one quote I really like where um, he says, uh, he's just talking about the importance of midfield. Mm. And he's saying all these foreign sides, they try and keep the ball in midfield. Yeah, Like in England, we try and get it out of the midfield. We get it <laughs> wide and get it out front. Yeah, But these sides are actually, they're playing one-twos. <clears throat> yeah, They're holding possession for the yeah. sake of it. Yeah, And you, you see this kind of really fascinating uh, learning curve, I mm. guess, for someone who was even at that stage you know the the most revered manager in England and
3: ironically d- despite how great he clearly was his one of the most one of the biggest chasms between tactical systems in my rudimentary sort of understanding of it would be in that um hopefully you'll agree would be in that Champions League final between Man United and Barcelona yeah where they just would just could get nowhere near them and, and it was kind of interesting because after the game I think it's Darren Fletcher maybe and Alex Ferguson himself just didn't really have any answers at all in the post-match interviews about what had just happened and and they couldn't really do anything else but be complimentary. And at at that point, is that that the kind of... We talked about the nadir of of tactics maybe, but is that the apex of what you think can be achieved in tactical football Guardiola's Barcelona in that time?
4: Yeah, I think that's a really interesting game actually because those two final defeats actually because United had often played defensively to get to those finals. It's 2009 we nine, we're talking about that was it. 2009 so yeah, they lost yeah, the first final. Yeah. 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 And Ferguson said something I think it was in his his second kind of major book and he was talking kind of about parking the bus and he said something along the lines of we knew that we, we knew that playing defensively was the best way to try and beat Barcelona mm. but I wanted to win a final playing our way. Yeah. Which I think is really interesting because people think of him as just a pragmatic, let's win the game, let's win the trophy. Mm. But the, clearly there was something in him that wanted to kind of put on a show. And I wonder whether it's because when you look at the two European uh, European Cups they did win, one was 99 in, against Bayern, where basically they got spanked <laughs> and, and, and yeah. you know had an incredible comeback. And the other one was on penalties against Chelsea. Yeah. And they hadn't really put on a show in terms of the way Milan did in 94, the way Barcelona did. So there was something within within him that wanted to be... A part of that, wanted to be rich part narrative. Yeah, wanted yeah. to be the entertainers and maybe wanted to kind of, you know, have one particular game that people remembered his sides as. But in terms of his legacy, I think it's interesting because obviously United, in various ways, are desperately har- harking back to that Ferguson era now. In terms mm. of well, in terms of getting Solskjaer in, mm. but it's tough to actually say what United's style was under Ferguson because it changed so much. Yeah, yeah, the only thing I can think
3: of, which is I suppose possibly even the cliche cliche thing, is the, you know. Attacking football, play with wingers, and and I I remember watching them and hardly ever not being entertained. But that's not really a tactical style, is it?
4: But I think they were entertaining because they had a habit of of kind of playing rubbish and coming back to win games. Yeah, I don't remember if you think about the kind of debates they had against other sides. You know, when there was two going for the title. When it was them against Newcastle, Newcastle were the entertainers. Mm. When it was him against Wenger's Arsenal, Arsenal were the footballing side. Mm. Mourinho's Chelsea would be the exception because they were very defensive.
3: But, they, but, they in, but when Mourinho first came in, they, they were less defensive than he's kind of been tagged with now.
4: I think I think he was... I mean, his first Chelsea, so when they won the league in 2004-05, yeah. that was very defensive. I mean, well, do you think, you think so? Okay. I mean, they conceded 15 goals. Sure. But that, that, I know that means they were defensively good, though, not they
3: necessarily sure. a defensive, defensive style.
4: Sure. I mean, I think they ended up being a lot more defensive than he wanted them to be. Okay. And one of the things for this book was interesting. I, I, I went back and I watched a lot of Porto games, mm. Mourinho's Porto, and they were a brilliant footballing side. Mm. And in their 13 Champions League games that year, when they won it in 2004... 10 of the 13, they dominated possession. Home and away against Real Madrid, home and away against Manchester United. Mm. The only exceptions were uh, in games where they went ahead early Mm. and the other side came into it. Mm. So, I mean, I I agree. I think Mourinho has become more and more defensive, but I can't really make a case for his first Chelsea side being entertainers. Well,
3: let's talk about your new book then. It's um, in in what I would describe as a a, a brand power move. You've called it zonal marking. Yeah. And it's... The making of modern European football. Yeah. Um. Apparently, all, by all accounts, a bit of a pig to research, and it took you a long time to write it. <laughs> so, why
4: should people read it? Uh, I think it's the most comprehensive guide to how footballs played in the modern era. Um. It, when does it start? What year does it start? For? So it starts as football did in 1992. Um. <laughs> because because this, is, this is presumably because of the back pass rule, the inv- uh, the yeah. Premier League,
3: and these big things that happened around that time.
4: Yeah, I think there's been two constants in terms of the evolution of the game since 92. One is the speed of the game and two is the fact that players are are kind of all-rounders now. And and the the Bosman, does that come into it? But there's a little bit of of, uh, Bosman, yeah. Hmm. But it's really kind of an on-pitch thing. But those two changes, the the kind of speed of the game and the kind of defenders having to play out and forwards having to press, I think they were sparked by the back-pass change. Right. In in different ways. So I think that is the kind of start date of modern football. Hmm. And it was quite... You know, people think that the the writing of books about the writing, Mm. but I think really it's about one, the research and two about the structure of the book. Mm. And so the structure of this book is it's not just saying it's not 25 disparate chapters. It takes each league in turn. Yeah. I spent a
3: bit of time with it. It's interesting because you start off with the Netherlands in 92 through to 96, it's kind of four year thing. So you do Netherlands and Italy, then France. Yeah. Portugal, Spain, Germany, and, and very optimistically from 2016 onwards, you'd go for England. So <laughs> without, without, a portent of, of ta- ta- perhaps what's to come for English football. Well,
4: yeah, that's, I mean, that was the one league I hadn't cut. I mean, I'd done that for the first book, so I was unsure whether I needed to cover it for this one. Yeah. And it was, in the end, I was like, okay, we'll just do an English section for 2016. To, to get the workout So now, well... <laughs> actually it was the opposite I was Was trying to bring it down so (laughs) that section's shorter Okay, Um, but the funny thing was that was when I came up with that that was going on a bit of a whim saying that this is the English era Hmm. but then this season I've been like you know like people maybe of our parents' generation who just support any English club in Europe Yeah, because I've been desperate for that to make sense Yeah, and now we've got two games left the Europa League final and the Champions League final yeah. and it's all English exactly. sides. Yeah, so it's worked out absolutely brilliantly for the book I've been getting behind every English side whenever I can and everyone's made
3: a what you're saying really is that it was in Europe in this era every country has made its own unique contribution to what the football it looks like now
4: yeah completely different styles and I think that's something again living in Europe and living in one of these kind of big European countries in a footballing sense, we kind of take for granted. Mm. So I was chatting a, a while back to um, an American guy who was into football, was into soccer. And he was talking about, and I, I know very little about the US national team, but he was talking about uh, how people were saying uh, Mexican players brought a different style to the US. And he was yeah. like, how can this be? This is just, yeah. they're just from a different country. This, yeah. And he was almost talking about it as if it was kind of xenophobic, I may, yeah. I, you know, I know nothing about this debate, but it's very clear to us living in Europe that there's a Spanish style, there's an Italian style, yeah. there's a Dutch style, and, and it, that's for me is the most interesting thing about football.
3: Does it become a reflection of the national psyche, or is that too far? Is that is that taking it too far? Would you say?
4: No, I think it is, and I think when you read a book about Italian football, Dutch football, it's always about that. It's always kind of rooted in the culture of a country. I tried to stick to it just being a footballing book. I wasn't yeah. trying to explain what Italy is like or what Holland is no. like. Because not not my place to do it. But yeah, there's certain things where you you can see uh, the culture of a country kind of manifest itself in its football style. And I think it's really interesting that people take it for granted and people, you know, I think football's often patronised a lot in terms of it being kind of a a useful cultural artefact, if that makes sense. But when I think, when I was growing up, the first thing I knew about the concept of Holland was like learning about total football. Yeah, it's a big pathway for people. Yeah, And and then you learn about, oh, Dutch liberalism. And like I would... You know, when I was a kid, I'd know nothing about Catalan independence movement if it wasn't for reading a book about Barcelona. Mm. And I'd know nothing about multiculturalism in France if it wasn't for all the, you know, the uh, the stories about the 98 World Cup winning side and them coming from, you know, different places around the world. So it's been, uh, you know, I, th- I think football is just such a valuable a way to find out more about the world and like i say that's not really what the books about it's about footballing style but you know there's roots of that in it and
3: it's a tricky path to go down but i want to go down it anyway this idea that and we've agreed there that every country that you've listed in this book the major footballing nations which i think is fair in europe has made a contribution and it'd obviously be impossible to to say whether they've all made an equal contribution but there is a feeling in football that there's a right way of playing and a wrong way of playing yeah and as someone who is adept at analysing tactics and styles of play, I mean, where do you sit on that particular debate? Do you find that sort of unbelievably snobby or do you think that there is really football should be a certain thing?
4: No, I like the variety of styles, um, but I'd also prefer to watch attacking football. So if I'm mm. watching a team 38 games a season, I'd rather play like Barcelona than Stoke.
3: But some people find Barcelona, that that vintage Barcelona side boring, like I metronomic. For, you know? for
4: sure. And, and I do get that. I do get that. But, I like the variety of styles. That, that, you know, it's interesting for me. If every side played like Barcelona, it'd be boring. Mm. When you get a Barcelona against Stoke, not that that game has ever happened, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. but equivalents. You know, when you got um, City in their running, we're going away to Burnley, for example. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. That, for me, that's really interesting because yeah. City are having to deal with things that they just they but, don't want to be doing. That's not how they're. But set that's up. a clash of styles, though, right? Sure. I'm, 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 trying,
3: I'm trying to drill down into the idea of what is the. I mean, maybe the answer is, you don't know what you're talking about, Luke. There is no answer to this. But I want to ask anyway, what is, the, what, what is the, the kind of right way to play? Because, or is it just in the eye of the beholder completely?
4: I think it's in the eye of the beholder. So in the book, there's some interesting stuff about Italian football, for example, which is traditionally very defensive. Hmm. And the period in the, in the book that I focus on in the, in the mid to late 90s is all about rolling back the changes that Saki had made. So Sasaki was brought in a completely more attacking style of with football. With this
3: Dutch influence as opposed to the exactly. Catanaccio kind of so style. So he yeah. hated
4: Italian football, like you <laughs> yeah. say. Yeah. Loved Dutch football, tried to make Italian football more Dutch and succeeded with his own Milan side. But people thought it was like an affront to Italian traditions. <laughs> and you see, you see the complete rolling back of everyone goes from zonal defence to playing man-to-man. Everyone goes from playing high up the pitch to defending deep. And by the end of the era, they appoint Trapattoni, who's obviously yeah. the most old school coach. Yeah, and yeah, it's you know, it's it's regional, it's 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 diverse across European styles, and everyone wants to be proud of their own country and its traditions, you know. And you see that now with, I think, more than ever, football clubs are saying we have an identity, we have a brand. Again, to go back to United, we've got to play the Manchester United way, almost. Above the kind of winning thing,
3: West Ham have been saying that since the 60s, really, haven't they? Well, exactly. Well, that's <laughs> the funny
4: thing. It used to be two or three clubs would have, yeah, there'd be a bit of a thing about Old oh, West Ham think that they play their way, but now you see it with clubs who I can't define this. So I'm unaware of them having a style over the years. But yeah. they thought, oh, we've got to be true to our style. And Chelsea is, I think, is the interesting one who are kind of the opposite. Who are like an Italian club mm. who like they their fans don't want this possession football that Surrey mm. plays. By and large, they hate it. They they accustomed to sitting deep, counter-attacking. They find it really funny that Arsenal think they play good football and then don't win the trophies. Yeah. That's, that's the role that well, like Chelsea Mourinho would Mourinho,
3: And that's p- partly why Mourinho and Chelsea's sort of history are so intertwined, right? Because Mourinho exactly. would say, yeah. as he said when Ajax were knocked out of the Champions League a month or two ago, you know, they can sit at home on the sofa and watch the final with their philosophy. Because, yeah. <laughs> which I thought was a, fan, a, ma- a magnificent quote. But, but that, that's why he's bound up with them because he's really just, look, let's just win these trophies. Let's take this club who've not had a tradition of winning anything and, and, and get them winning things. Because um majority of people listening will be will be um, based in, in the UK, what would you say is the English style then? Because I remember Jack Wilshire a while ago saying something which I think people rolled their eyes at, which was it was when he was still part of the England squad and he was saying, you know, we have to understand what we're good at in England. We're, we're mm. good at tackling and we're good at running fast and we're good at this and we're good at that and we're good at, I can't remember exactly what you said, but you know what I mean. Yeah. yeah. Is that unfair to English football to so say that's the contribution that, 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 that they can make? No, I don't think it is. I actually think... <laughs> Should that be seen as, as as somehow less valued
4: than the other contributions? No, I mean, I think it's worth pointing out. I mean, first, I actually think Wilsh is quite interesting when talk he talks about football. I think he's quite an interesting, perceptive guy in, in the footballing sense. Um, and that was a time when everyone was insisting we had to play possession football. We had to play Spanish. Because we were football. copying the trendy thing at the time, right? Exactly. Whereas since then, I think there's been a shift away from that pure possession football towards pressing, which is about... Running, it's about regaining the ball, mm. high up the pitch. To a certain extent, it's about tackling. And that that suits us more. So I think you know, that was an entirely fair comment. I think we were going down a road that we didn't necessarily have the players for that. And mm. and I think now football's changed and we've, you know, maybe changed slightly with the times. This England side, to me, feels more suited to modern football. Not just because we have better players than we did five or six years ago but because it's about mobility it's about pressing it's about energy and we've got a lot of guys particularly in the attacking section of the side that can do that that can do that Mm. yeah and you obviously possibly uniquely placed to be able to identify
3: these trends how they've happened over the years I mean you've literally written the book two books on it what what do you think is is the direction of 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 football now what's going to be the next big tactical um iteration because I think it might be tempting to think that Every time something new happens, or oh, this is nothing else can happen after this. There's no, there's nowhere left to go. What, yeah. wh- where, do you, what direction do you see it moving in?
4: Well, I think the interesting thing now is, uh, you know, there was the rise of pr- possession football. Then there was the rise of pressing, which was almost a response to that, try and mm. get the ball off them quickly. And now I think the question is how you overcome the press. Um, and I think the most interesting manager in this regard is Sarri at Chelsea, who hasn't really been able to carry out his ideas as he wants as he wants at Chelsea. But when you look at his Napoli side and a couple of goals that Chelsea have scored this season, they're using possession to tempt the press. You know they and want bypassing. They, it. Yeah, so they are, they're not trying to go. Oh God, this is this press. This is scary. We need to just work our way through this. They're using the press to create the space and working it through quickly and and i think that's really interesting it's uh there was a goal they scored against man city uh i think it was kante scored mm. uh at stanford bridge where well, you saw that really obviously they had the ball in in the back four and they just played sideways passes until city pushed up the game uh, mm. pushed up the pitch and then they transferred the ball really quickly through it so i think i think it will be about I don't really know what you call that. It's almost like counterattacking with possession, yeah. if that makes sense. Setting the
3: trap. But, but would it would not be as effective
4: to do that and then play almost like a long ball style to bypass it as quickly as possible? Sure, so that's what happened in that move. Mm. You know, David Luiz hit a diagonal ball and you've seen that a lot. I, I always thought David Luiz's passing ability I always thought was a bit overrated. Mm. You kind of see someone who can't defend very well and you think, mm. well, they must be great on the ball. Mm. I wasn't always convinced by that. Nah, no. But I think his passing this season within that system has been, been, been fantastic, yeah.
3: He gets a lot of stick, doesn't he? In, in, in
4: the, yeah, he, he does make silly errors. I mean, yeah. that's uh, yeah, it's difficult to get get past that. But he is he is very well suited to what Surrey wants to do.
3: Um, okay, great. What's next for you, Michael? What you going? Any, any danger you're going to try and? I know you want a little bit of a break now. You've written this book, which was a big project for you. But is there any danger you're going to cover the game in a slightly different way? Is there any other areas of football that you're interested in, or is it you're going to stick with with what you know?
4: Um, I mean, no plans to do anything vastly different. But I think one thing that maybe is uh, underestimated or maybe not covered enough is everyone's commented on, you know, the size of City's backroom staff and that kind of thing. And I think just going more in depth into what those people do. And you kind of know what their job is, but in a way you don't know how that information is fed to that, players. That's
3: a hugely changed part of the game, which I, tr- I tried to cover a while ago. I, I, I did a, um, a book review of Michael Calvin's Living on the Volcano. Have yeah. you read that? Yeah, yeah. He goes around different managers around the country. And he he's kind of speaks to these guys who are all things to all men. They're like, one day they're a psychologist, the next day they're a groundsman, one of them's yeah. buying a net off eBay to put up on thing. <laughs> and as I was researching it, I saw that Guardiola's got 21 backroom staff. And that is a huge change to what we would consider traditionally football management to do. I mean, it's essentially managing a team who's managing a team. And that's a huge change, isn't
4: it? Yeah, completely. And uh, there's so many kind of real specialist areas now that you find. I mean, there's, you know, the lengths that football clubs go to to make their players comfortable these days. I mean, even, I don't know if you've read about this, but a lot of teams are kind of, uh, for away trips, they're transporting the, the players bedding around. Like around the world to make oh. them have a better sleep and this, make is, them this is this is this
3: day of Brailsford kind of aggregated marginal gains type,
4: type of philosophy, right? For sure, yeah. yeah. And and the number of yeah, I mean the interesting thing is, or the uninteresting thing is, yeah. often these guys can't talk about it, but they're doing like really niche, really specific things. Yeah. Um, I wonder if you would ever consider
3: uh, whether maybe you have in the past. I don't know whether you would consider. Consulting for football clubs about t- on the tactical side and and helping them maybe dedicating the time to to looking at the tactics in in a way that's slightly different a fresh pair of eyes kind of thing would you be interested in that?
4: No, to be honest, I, I think football clubs have so many people working for them and at a really high level now that I think ten years ago that was a you know an area that they weren't covering particularly well. But these clubs have like a lot of data analysts and a lot of yeah. guys, you know, a lot of tactics guys, and the the brain power there is. Huge again. Mm. It's a question of how, of how it's transferred to the manager mm. and how it's transferred to the players. I mean, I remember you know City are quite ahead of Man City are quite ahead of the game on this. I remember when they sacked Mancini and brought in Pellegrini, mm. and they released the statement saying they wanted to work in a more holistic way. I saw that, yeah, and everyone found that really yeah. funny. And it's like a bit of a it's not the it's kind. It's a wanky term, but yeah, It's a perfectly not, reasonable thing to say. Yeah, it's not the kind of word that you want to be uh, to be hearing your football club using. Really, no, no, no. But about a year later, I was at um, this Opter... Uh, pro forum they call it where there's kind of a meeting between lots of guys who work in the uh, statistical side of football and they had a really interesting presentation from one of their stats guys who he didn't use that phrase but it was almost showing how they put together a training session they have the data guys they analyse the data they found out that I think they were playing Tottenham and they found that of all the Premier League sides Tottenham's two central midfielders played a higher proportion of passes than any other side. Mm. So then they fed that back to the training ground and had a training ground exercise where it was about pressing these two central midfielders and you could leave the fullbacks open, but you were always on the central midfielders. Mm. So that was a kind of, you know, it's, that's quite a basic thing now, but mm. that was an example of how it is a holistic process. You do have information from lots of different parts of the club and it's up to the manager or the sporting director in some cases to amalgamate this together and formulate a game plan but there's no place for you at the top table I, I don't think so I, I think there's uh, I think clubs have pretty sorted for people like me and uh, you'll have to stick to writing books then won't you pretty much <laughs>
3: Yeah. <laughs> Michael thanks so much for your time it's been fascinating as it always is and I appreciate you coming in and I hope your uh, book does well I'm sure it will um, if you're still listening at this point get zone of Marking by Michael Cox pick it up um, it's out on the come out on the 30th of May didn't it so yes. it's available in all good bookshops yes thanks Michael thanks This episode of Ramble Meets was sponsored by Bet365. This
4: was a Radio Staccano production.
2: Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new custom spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, Crannies, edges, and curves, without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom spray five and one, only from Rustolium.
0: Hey, hey, I'm Jimmy Bullard, and this is me old Mac Affners. We're back together, son. How are
4: ya? Hi, Bully. Great to be back working with you. What are we doing here, though? We're starting a football club
3: in podcast form. The only thing we know—it's called FC Bullard
4: after that it's all up for grabs so we haven't got any players we haven't got kids we haven't got a club badge we haven't got a stadium correct fc bullard welcome to the club Acast powers the world's best podcasts here's a show that
0: we recommend